You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Featuring Marco. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. We're going on every other week basis still here between me and Marco and me and Joe. I know the Joe one was just a day or so ago. Uh, although I guess this is probably going up on Monday, not today. So yeah, a few days ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're trying to we're trying to get through a lot of titles that have been coming out lately. Oh uh, yeah. Although last week's was really sh- short. It was one of those irritating things. Like when Joe came for the discs, I only had a few. I was like, well, here's like five titles. That's all I got. And then like three days later, I had like ten more in the oh, mail. Oh, of course. And it was yeah. like a, <sighs> when it, you know, it's either feast or famine. Yeah, it really is. But we have a uh, you know not a giant show today, but you know bigger than the one with Joe and yeah. some. Really Really solid titles to oh, talk God, about. Yeah, this so, was actually a very satisfying stack. Yeah, and a lot of stuff that was not on my radar whatsoever mm-hmm. that ended up being pretty satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get started, just like to point out once again, I know you guys listen to the show all the time are sick to death of hearing this, but bear with us as I remind you to if you go into the actual digital noise page on oneofus.net. There's images of all the movies we're talking about this week. If you click on those set images, it'll bring you to an Amazon.com page where you can buy that movie. And if you choose to do that, we get a nice little kickback. But here's the thing. Maybe you look at it and you go, well, I don't want to buy that movie after all. I want to go buy, I feel like watching, buying the original Planet of the Apes series on Blu-ray, which right now would be a cool thing to do. uh, Because that new movie is pretty damn good. But you do that and you're like, well, how do I make sure that uh, one of us.net gets some money from that? Well, it doesn't matter as long as you start from one of our links that take you to Amazon. If you at that point type into the search bar at Amazon, Planet of the Apes box set and buy it, we still get a kickback. So that's convenient. Yes. And we don't judge no matter what you buy on there. That's well, between you and Amazon. We actually don't know what you buy. On there. Exactly. They don't send us that information. They just send us the money. So, mm-hmm. uh, But that's you know a little bit that helps. The biggest way to help is to become a subscriber, of course. So many different levels of being a subscriber now, uh, including we've been doing practically weekly new commentary tracks for Time Lord and Above subscribers. And we just put out Beneath the Planet of the Apes with Martin Thomas and Ian Butcher from Double Toasted, which was one of the most fun commentaries I've recorded in some time. Really enjoyed that. And I also, finally, it's been on my to-do list forever, went about to fixing all the old commentaries. A lot of them were set up on there to be where you could only listen to it by paying for it separately through CD Baby. Well, I got rid of all that and just made them so if you're a Time Lord, you have free access to all of them. And that, that adds something like 15 commentaries. So oh. if you're like if subscribed in the last two years, there's a lot of stuff on there that you've never had access to before that now you do. So you want to check that out. And a lot of old cool stuff with some with Cargill, some with uh, Professor Jeff from Rage Select. Uh, stuff with Martin, a lot more, just really, really fun stuff. All the usual suspects. Uh, as well, been adding a bunch of stuff to the Jedi Lounge for the top subscribers. And this weekend, I will be adding a giant photo gallery that sort of represents a lot of the history of, of different sites that I and other people here have been part of, including photos and art from The Real Deal, from Spill.com. 
uh, uh, and, and lots of different things. Just lots of stuff you've never seen before. So very cool. Only for our top subscribers, and there's a lot of it in there. And soon there'll be more stuff in there. Already there is a pilot of a television show that never was seen before for the Leog back in the day. That's you can you can only watch it right there. And uh, there's also some old, fun, some fun new video stuff that we did for for what we used to call the League Arena, like a trivia show. We did videos with like right and wrong answers to question oh. with videos with really geeky stuff, and that's going to be up on there relatively soon as well. So lots of reasons to become a subscriber, and honestly, that is the reason this site is able to exist. Without you subscribers, we we quite literally wouldn't be here. I would not be able to have the time to do this because this is like an eighty hour a week job. Yeah, I mean, think about just. Uh, Think about like uh, paying a little bit extra to get the Criterion version of something. Exactly. You get all the special features in- included, and you know you're supporting everything else that you already enjoy on the site. I, you know, it's funny. I always laugh. I have lots of friends who are podcasters, and sometimes I, I I read on Facebook them going, "Oh, I'm so tired. I do so much site work on my podcast this weekend." I was like, "Oh, on your one <laughs> podcast, <laughs> I have like nine. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Oh, well, it's a lot of work, but it is a passion uh, project and a labor of love. But anyway, without any further ado, let's go to the reviews. Yes, let's do that. Let's start off with what is definitely going to be my pick of the week. This my is, pick of the week, too. This is a very controversial film, even when it came out. It's probably twice as controversial now. Oh, more so, yes. But we're talking about Sam Peckinpah's 1971 American-British thriller, Straw Dog, starring Dustin Hoffman and Susan George. With a strangely uncredited but major uh, appearance by uh, David Warner, Warner yeah. who strangely was not credited. Apparently, he and, uh, for whatever reason, he and Peck and Paul were buddies, and somehow he just got him in the movie. Yeah, but I don't know why he chose not to take a credit for it. But this is the Criterion edition. It's super sweet, and one of those editions that actually comes with a actual booklet instead of just a mm-hmm. pamphlet, which is very nice, which it deserves. Straw Dogs is the story. Dustin Hoffman is an American. He's married to Irish woman Susan George. They've moved to the small town that she's from uh, because I get, you know the Vietnam War is going on, and he's kind of Dustin Hoffman's kind of, basically makes clear I don't want to fight. I don't want to deal with the protest against fighting. I just want to be left alone, and I'm going to do my thing. Yeah, he's and an he's, academic, and he wants yeah. to get away from the sort of hotbed of political protest activity centering around college and universities yeah. at the time. He thinks he's going to get away and just uh, go on sabbatical and work on a research paper uh, in this sort of old, like, 18th, 19th century farmhouse in the very village that his wife uh, was born and raised in. So everything should be idyllic. But we soon realize very quickly that there is a lot of tension, not only between he and his wife, but them and the townspeople who view him as an outsider and, you know, are very suspicious of this man who has married the woman from their village and who has a lot of airs and pretensions about him. And as well, she is, you know, taking on a lot of American ways. Right from the beginning, we see she's walking around brawless and her mm-hmm. nipples are prominently showing through her sweater and townspeople are just eyeing her up and down in this sort of mixture of disgust and lust. Yeah, one I- of whom was a former boyfriend of hers who yes. will feature very heavily in the... Uh, Movie's most controversial scene. Yes, I mean, not to put it lightly, and this is definitely, you know, talk about your trigger warnings. This film has probably the longest and most disturbing rape scene ever set in a film that aired in conventional theaters. Yeah. Now, I had somebody who actually was said to me, referred to it as a gratuitous rape scene. 
it is anything but a gratuitous rape scene. Look up what that word means, yeah. and you'll know that the that whole scene is such. And what is happening during it? The performance of Susan George, which is astonishing oh, yeah. in this. She, There's so, this. so many things happening in this scene. And then the, the flashes as we see what's going on with Dustin Hoffman, who's elsewhere, that it is the it's definitely sort of the plateau moment of the film where everything else that's happened before has led up to and everything that happens after is in its way because of. This is such an incredibly well shot film, and yeah, it's very disturbing. And I don't mean gory, really. No, no. It's psychologically really yeah. disturbing, and it, it's interesting that still to this day, people are not entirely sure what Sam Peckinpah was trying to say with this movie. I, I'm, I'm not sure he knew. I think there's yeah. something subliminal that he was working off of. And you know, I first saw this movie about 20 years ago. Uh, at a Sam Peckinpah retrospective screening at uh, Lincoln Center. And, you know, I saw this. I saw, you know, uh, Ballad of Cable Hogue, The Wild Bunch, of course, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, all of these great Peckinpah films. By the standards of today, the violence in those films aren't really shocking the way they were in the late 60s and no. early 70s. But the one film in that group that to this day you know, just had an impact on me was Straw Dogs. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it is because of that very controversial, very problematic rape scene. Yeah, it's, because it's, it is problematic. It's yeah. not just, it, it, as we will find out, there are many things that cause uh, the Dustin Hoffman character to finally kind of go off the rails and just, you know, get his vengeance on these guys who have descended upon his house mm -hmm. and have basically laid siege to the place. And it just becomes a kind of, it could be a very standard sort of, you know, home invasion action thriller. But yet it's not. But There's it's not. so much going on under the surface yeah. that's very easily detectable, both in the way that Susan George is reacting to the way Dustin Hoffman is, is behaving, the way that he's kind of turning into the primal man. The way she reacts to that rape, that is the problematic thing, because there is an implication, more than an implication, that at some point she starts to enjoy it. Or, alternately... She and I agree with you. That is, there's no way of knowing because even Peckinpah's never said. Did she start to enjoy it, or is she giving in so as not to make it continue to be violent? Yeah, it's un. It's it's one of those. There's so many different ways to interpret that scene alone and what's happening in it, and the aftermath of said scene. I think two things that are worth pointing out uh, before we, you know, because obviously we need to move on. But one, this is a very good. Uh, as you might expect from Criterion, this is a very good release with a lot of special features that definitely go into that scene and the making of this film. Uh, one of the things that uh, he was criticized for was that rape scene. And Peckinpah did an unusual thing in that he actually wrote in response to some of these uh to some of these negative reviews. I think he wrote to Pauline Kale, who called it a fascist film and mm -hmm. some other and he said something very telling, which is like, you're all missing the fact that Dustin Hoffman is not the hero of this movie. Yeah. He's the heavy, which once you look at it through that perspective, you kind of see it very differently. And likewise, uh, Stephen Prince, uh, who's been on a lot of Criterion commentaries, uh, this is ported over from the previous Criterion. There is some new stuff here to prevent this from being a total double, double dip. But that commentary is definitely worth listening to because he puts together a very articulate defense of this film, acknowledging mm -hmm. its problematic issues. And even when he gets to that key scene, he talks about it less in terms of whether you should agree with it, whether it's morally correct. He says, let's focus on 
what Peckinpah is doing technically. Because Peckinpah, his edit, his style to shooting and editing was revolutionary Absolutely. at his time. And it gets lost in the shuffle when we're talking just about violence and talking about the, the subject matter. He says, let's look at how he actually constructs this and how it impacts how you read this scene. Mm-hmm. Because that is something that gets overlooked when talking about Peck and Paul. It's, it's interesting that so many of his films are really about masculinity. Yeah. And yet, like, and I feel like it's, it's, this makes this film even more valid today to view it as... Mm-hmm. Him talking about toxic masculinity, yeah. which was almost unheard of at this point. Yeah, there was no toxic masculinity. There was just masculinity. Yeah. Nobody but it, defined it, but it good or bad. But the things he said since make seem to make clear to me that's exactly what he was getting at. And saying Dustin Hoffman is not the yeah. hero. And in all of his violence movies, he always talked about how... He was trying to make a movie about violence and how it – by all accounts, Peckinpah was a, a son of a bitch and a very complicated human being. Uh, and everybody seemed to have a kind of love-hate, mostly hate relationship Although strangely, practically a super liberal in terms of yeah. political and social you opinion. Know, he's like, no, I'm <laughs> against violence, and yet he just pushed violence to the max, which is one of the reasons why I think he sometimes comes across as clearly talented but somehow not necessarily able to articulate – I think other filmmakers have taken some of those ideas and maybe uh, found a more cogent way of presenting them. But at the time Peckinpah was working, really few people were working with those themes in that kind of uh, very technical, uh, formalistic manner. The, the extreme nature of violence in some of his films, including in this one, and sometimes the very graphic nature of it, he always said was intended because he found violence disgusting, and so many of Hollywood films seem to glamorize it, especially from the Western era. Right. And he wanted to show violence is not pretty. Getting shot is not pretty right. or heroic. There are consequences. There are consequences. And this, this movie, if anything, is kind of his masterpiece of yeah. really expressing that idea, both psychological violence, which is even more ever-present here yeah. than, than the, and then physical violence. Uh, you pointed out the letter he wrote to Pauline Kael. You can actually read that, and it's, what's, it's almost charming because he's yeah. like – Hey, I'm friends with Pauline Kale, and he writes a really <laughs> nice letter addressing her concerns and everything, and like what she says, and he's like, "But you know, whatever, it's fine." Yeah. Like he's like super nice about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's a he's a complex uh, character, and uh, there's definitely some good uh, behind the scenes material. There's also uh, an interview. Uh, with his, one of uh, his biographers, you'll find out a lot about the making of this film and uh, just kind of what made Sam Peckinpah tick. And what's fascinating, there's a, a feature length. Again, one of the other items that's ported over from the previous Criterion edition. Uh, there's a f- almost uh, it's like a 52 minute long uh, retrospective with pretty much everyone who survives from the cast mm-hmm. and a lot of the original crew members. And even to this day, some of them seem to disagree on what this film is about. Oh, yeah. So it's definitely one of those movies that is worth watching. Know that you're going to get into some uncomfortable territory. But this is this is a, an important piece of cinema, and I think it's worth talking about. And I do – one of the things I really enjoyed is the bonus features. And all the bonus features on here are well worth checking out and really in-depth. But there's a brand-new one called A Controversial Classic where they talk to Linda Williams, who's a professor emerita of film and media and rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. And she talks about – 
the things we've just been talking about, mm-hmm. how like there's no question the film is problematic, but it also is a film that everyone should see. It's an important film and it's kind of a masterpiece. Yeah. Like, is it, you know, yeah, it has problems, but what are those problems? Let's talk about that. And this film, the, one of the good things it does is that it's a great, let's have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a class of film that you judge by the fact that not what, how you agree how you feel about it, but how much discussion it generates. And this film over 40 years later is still generating a lot of worthwhile discussion, man, rewatching this thing. And I've seen it. This is probably my third time I've seen it. And you're just never ready for how it makes you feel. No, it's, it's so disturbing. It just makes your stomach curl up in knots watching it. Yeah. Uh, it's a great tension builder. And let's be frank. I mean, violence in Peck and Paws films, like I said earlier, is kind of dated now by comparison. I mean, there's more, there's more death in the first two minutes of John Wick than there are in yeah. the entirety of Straw Dogs. But Straw Dogs is not trying to those are that's not a knock against John Wick and other action movies. It's just they're trying to do different things. This is a film that's trying to say something. Whether you think he said it well or even just said it coherently, that's a going again part of that conversation. Very true. Well, our next title is Don't You Recognize Me? This was a little direct to DVD indie festival type film mm-hmm. from director Jason Figgis as far as I can tell no relation to Mike Figgis <laughs> uh, although we will have a film of his to review either next show or the show after I can't remember uh, it's a yes okay hold yourself it is a found footage movie if you will although not technically found footage I guess it's a director who's a documentarian who we're following around here named Tony Aiello played by Matthew Toman who's working on this project he calls a day in the life or basically just takes average your average people and follows them around sees what their days are like and he's following around a guy uh, named Kay Gallagher played by Jason Sherlock who uh, he meets him meets his friends meets his girlfriend takes him like hey uh, like I gotta show you where I work and they go there and that's when the film really starts when right. we find out that this meeting of these two was not accidental and, and they're that- met by another film crew Yes. That's the first kind of... Actually, the first sort of cringe-inducing moment is when, you know, Tony, the filmmaker, begins to suspect that Kay is possibly involved in some kind of illegal activities. Yeah. There's a realization that, oh, we maybe witness the things that are going to be uncomfortable. And he has no idea. But, it, <laughs> you know, he's just thinking, oh, I might see some, you know, uh, council estate thug rough up a few guys over money. And then it turns into something far weirder and far darker. Uh, again, this is a hard movie to discuss without spoiling it. Yeah. Let's just, um, just but suffice yeah. it to say there is a relationship that the director is not aware of between these two people. Yeah. And he is forced for the, for the bulk of this movie to confront the history and the reasoning behind that relationship. Now, I've read a lot of reviews where people actually really did like this film. I admire its spirit of what mm-hmm. it was trying to do. However, I felt it was so incredibly repetitive once that ball drops. It's like, oh, there's the big crunch. Yeah. Now what? And it's literally one guy yelling the same thing at another guy for an hour. It it feels very improvised, and it's obvious that there are key lines that they need to get out. Mm -hmm. And they build those improvisations off of those key lines, and that sometimes involves characters kind of just repeating themselves. A a lot. And then it... (laughs) Here's my problem with this movie, without going into too many spoilers, I promise, is that what's really interesting about it is, again, it's kind of a fresh take on the found footage genre. 
uh, you have this documentary filmmaker who suddenly realizes that he himself has become the subject of this documentary. Uh, and it's very uncomfortable to find himself on the other side of that. Uh, he's used to following people, and then he can manipulate footage. He can kind of catch them at vulnerable moments. He's He thinks of himself as this sort of enlightened guy who is, you know bringing the camera into just the working class neighborhoods and, and showing people what life is like on the other side in a somewhat condescending, smug way. When that is turned around on him, uh, it's very uncomfortable. And when you realize that he does have a sin in his past that is the cause of this. And when we get that, as you said, when that ball drops... I don't buy it. Well, I don't believe it. Yeah. You, it's and not you never set up believe well. it. You never believe it. Yeah. And it the characters at that point tell you exactly what's going to happen and then there's an hour of this one guy yelling at another guy and then what he said was going to happen happens. Yeah. And that's the movie and I'm like so, you know, the thing is that character never really defends himself or explains himself. Yeah. We never really understand why You're this like, supposed thing happens and when we are told what happened you just don't believe it. Yeah. And by the time a third character, uh, a new character is introduced towards the end of the film, you, you just, it's the moment where the character of Tony should become a more active participant in his own movie. Yeah. However, uh, a, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name. He's probably the best part of the movie. Daz, which is Daz, uh, by the Darren heavy, Travers. Who is also uh, one of the writers, one of the editors, and, and also one of plays the executive a, producer. plays a dual role where in other flashback scenes we see he yeah. plays his twin brother. Right. And I don't want to go too far into that either because that's also a re not a reveal, but, you know, it will be important later. He's the best part of this movie, but because he's so heavily involved in it, I think they perhaps lacked a bit of objectivity. I think had they realized, you know, uh, this guy's performance is kind of overwhelming everything else, yes. especially the character who we think should be the protagonist. The whole thing seems to be a look at how good I am as an actor yes. like piece when everybody else is just kind of left by the side while he wanders around, like I said, presumably improving around a few key lines, but he's not good enough of an improver to do anything really interesting yeah. in it. And... If you want to do this as a movie for that, for as long as the sequence of the film goes on, which is a really mo more than half the film, then you really need some interaction between these characters or maybe yeah. another level to the story we right. didn't even know, he didn't which even know about. Which is why the Tony character needs to be a more active participant in the story. He doesn't really, the actor who's playing him just doesn't ever seem to rise to the same level. We should get these interesting two-handers between these actors and we don't get that. Yeah, as it is, it builds to a very interesting plateau that's kind of very exciting in the in like basically the beginning of the second act, but then has nowhere to go from there. Yeah. So ultimately, I can't say I really cared for this very mm -hmm. much, but it is interesting like work from a director that I, I'll, I'll be curious yeah. to see what he tries I next. I think it's a good early effort. Yeah. All right, let's move on to another uh, film that wasn't on my radar, but one I really did enjoy, admittedly, in a sort of Boy, I sure miss Ocean's Eleven yeah. sort of way. And that is Bitcoin heist or Bitcoin's heist, depending on if you get the American uh, re-release mm -hmm. or the import release, which it was called Bitcoin's heist. Uh, this is by director Ham Tran. It is essentially, you know, it, it is a heist movie. Make no mistake. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's, how do I describe this? It's a cop who is trying to, track down a deep cover 
guy who's stealing lots and lots and lots of like bitcoins and in to get him she has to use a bunch of criminals that she's arrested already who are already somewhat involved to pose and do a very Ocean's Eleven type yeah. scam to take this guy it's, down. It's that Ocean's Eleven now you see me now you don't kind of mental uh, template which is you know to take down a criminal I need a bunch of criminals who know how to do these intricate scams and there's a lot of fun in how they pull this off. Uh, we do center around a young uh, detective. Uh, she captures an accountant uh, who reports to this guy known only as the ghost, who is providing you know these illegal la- money laundering services via Bitcoin uh, internationally. He's a big deal, and she needs to bring him down. So all she assembles this team from all these misfits. So of course you've got a guy who's a magician and an illusionist. Yeah. You know you've got he's young, pretty good too. He's, he's very good. He's actually he's a real. Ma- he's musician. actually a real magician in real life and very impressive. You got this. Uh, this older man who's like a master forger with his little girl who is sort of the, uh, the small, conveniently sized acrobat. Yeah. You've got a guy whose job it is to kind of like do the hacking. Uh, everybody has some little kind of convoluted subplot. This is a very convoluted but fun movie. Well, they give them all relationships to each other as yes. well. They all have kind of these tiny little subplots with it, like how they relate to each other. And best of all, and I really appreciated this because you were going, okay, this is a fun but somewhat standard heist film. Yeah. It's very well filmed. Third act, it gets has a, a decent darker. budget. Yeah. And then it takes this I did not see it coming yeah. at all twist in the third act where I was like, wow, that's yeah. fucking cool. It gets dark and it has a really action-packed third act yeah. that is going a very different way than you thought yeah. it was going to. It, it's implausible as hell, oh, but sure. it is fun. And, you know, like I said, it, it's not as good as some of those other movies we've talked about. But I think that, you know, if you like that kind of heist, sort of a, a dirty dozen type of film... Then yeah, this is definitely fun, and you know a lot of the characters are a lot more charming and nice than I would have expected. They ha- they all have to be somewhat lovable rogues, and they are. They achieve that. They yeah. make them give them all enough detail that, uh, unlike a lot of films like this, you really feel like you kind of know and yeah. have your feelings about each one of the crew. Um, I, it, it's fun. One oddity about this, it's Vietnamese. And yeah. that's only strange because it's really the only entry I can even think of from Vietnam in the action-adventure genre. I oh, yeah. And it's so well-produced and it's, directed. It's yeah. obviously got a sizable budget. I was like, wow, this it's is not, strong. not what I would have expected. But it also whatsoever. has, you know, it has Koreans. It has, you know, it has... It's a combination of Vietnamese, Korean, English, Chinese. It kind of hops between Taiwan and Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's globetrotting. It, it sure. has that globetrotting feel to it, uh, which makes the budget just seem bigger than it really is. Uh, it's well worth watching. And, you know, like I said, it's a small guilty pleasure. This is not anything, you know, of any great significance. But it's a nice little thing to tide you over until, you know, Steven Soderbergh decides to come out of retirement again yeah. and make a new Ocean's Oh, he, he already is. He announced yeah. he's coming out of retirement oh, recently. Uh, all right. So our next film is another little indie film that I was surprised how much I liked, especially considering Cullen Lutz plays one of the lead characters. Yeah. And if there ever was just the, a living piece of wood, I mean, he's right there <laughs> on the, the Jai Courtney, you know, thing. Yeah. But you have Jamie Bamber as your secondary male lead here. Who most people know as Apollo from uh, Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. who is terrific and carries this film. Oh, this absolutely. film is called Money. It is a feature film debut by director Martin Rossetti. 
And the idea being is this this lovely two well not two couples lovely one couple Kellen Lutz and his wife uh, I want to say it was uh, I think it's Jess Wexler mm-hmm. um, and that is oh, she was the one that was from Teeth yes who played the lead character in the film Teeth if you okay. remember that excellent little indie horror uh, they've invited their friends over for like drinks and dinner uh, played by Jesse Williams and uh, uh, and I don't see the other actress's yeah, name here not, my, my apologies uh, but but um, and it's all nice, and they get a knock on the door, and it is Jamie B- Bamber's like, hey, I'm your new neighbor. I know you've got guests, but I did have this bottle of wine. And, just, and they're like, she's like, you know what? Come on in. It's like a $10,000 bottle of wine. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, have a seat. But it starts to be very an antagonistic relationship rather quickly between him and Kellen Lutz Mark's friend, uh, Sean, who's there. And they're like, so what's what's happening here? And quickly it's revealed uh, with a little – the addition, a little bit we saw earlier that uh, Mark and Sean have been stealing money from the company they work from and they've just brought home their first payday. Mark is – was not ha- like he doesn't want to do this anymore. He was never excited about it in right. the first place. But he's like, we we're done. That's it. He's Sean- the brains, and the other guy is the guy who's in every one of these movies. Who's the guy who's like, I'm going to do coke and bring in my girlfriend and like just get greedy and want to make everything terrible. Yeah, he's such an obnoxious dick right from the get go. You get that Mark doesn't even really like him. Yeah, they, he's, they're friends he's, by convenience. Yeah, they were the friends because they worked together. And probably Sean found a loophole yeah. that was the idea. In to fact, do this. this whole dinner party is really just a cover so that they can meet clandestinely yeah. and transfer over the money to one another, which they've been paid in cash. But Jamie Bamber is there to say, uh, I'm a top of the line dude at what I do, which is never entirely clear what that's defined as, but you know, hitman slash muscle slash whatever. He has um, some kind of inside knowledge yeah. and he wants to use it to his advantage. So he knows the money is there and he just wants them to give it to him. And then he's like, look, I don't want to hurt anybody here and there's no reason for me to. Just give me the money and I'll leave. But they ain't having it. <laughs> and this it turns is- into a very psychological cat and mouse game between these characters yeah. as even the female characters start to have their own making their own decisions about where the what should the happen with this money. The dynamics between these they people shift. shift constantly throughout this movie. They Different characters get the upper hand at different times. This almost feels like a play in that it is it primarily five people in a single location just around the confines of their beautiful house uh, just trying to outwit one another. And it's it's very smart and uh, and very efficient for what it is. Uh, very short, too. It's barely over 85 minutes. Uh, I really quite, like you, I had no idea about what to expect other than, you know, it was just a small little thriller. And mm-hmm. it turned out to be much smarter and more economical than I anticipated. Uh, this is the joy of just watching uh, just five people in a room trying to outwit one another mm-hmm. and just sort of playing against one another and trying to ally themselves with one another and turn on the others. So in that regards, it's very efficient. There is a weird moment at the beginning of the film uh, where you get a sort of a case of Chekhov's gun, which if you're not aware, that's just basically the old idea that, you know, if you show a gun in the first act, it's gonna get you. it doesn't have to be a gun necessarily. It can be any kind of weapon or significant Chekhov. prop. I thought Hitchcock said that. No, it was Chekhov. Okay. It, it goes back from Chekhov and the Seagull. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, if Chekhov says, you know, if you show a gun to the audience in the first act, that act, that gun must go off before the play is over. And they do that, but then they don't follow through on it. 
in one particularly weird prop that never shows up again, yeah. which was an odd misstep for a film that otherwise is very economical and very efficient. Yeah, it's extremely tight with the exception of that one thing, but honestly, I had all but forgotten about it. Well, I, I thought that end. is such a weird thing. I know that's going to come up again. And when another character comes back, I thought, oh, that's where that moment's going to come in. Right. Never happened. I don't know if that's just the filmmakers being, you know, lazy or forgetting about it, or if it was some kind of intentional red herring. But like I said, it was an odd misstep in a film that is otherwise very tightly constructed. Agreed. Uh, also, a nice little performance in here. Small, but but welcome by Frederick Lane, who's one of those TV actors who's been in, like, mm -hmm. everything. He was Azazel on Supernatural. He was Marshall on Lost. Uh, he played Frank McCann on American Horror Story. He's been in a bunch of... He was in The Dark Knight Rises. One of those guys you see him, you're like, oh, it's that guy yeah. who who's, does something in the end that is not at all what I was expecting. Yeah. That was like almost this weird sort of like... Like for a film that's a, essentially a sort of like like modern noir, it's such a little optimistic breath of fresh air that you're like, wow, I... I don't even know what to make of what just happened. But. Yeah, I don't know how much I buy all of this ultimately at the end, but like I said, it it has that sort of well-crafted, you know, the well-written play. This could have been a hit in the 40s on Broadway. Yeah. You know, it's very efficient that way. Well, let's go on to our next film, which is the latest movie from Arrow. Yay, Arrow! Increasingly, oh, significantly less efficient than the one film we just watched. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, this is Doberman Cop, and we well, we just did a Sonny Chiba film yes, with something it cop. It was uh, a Wolf Cop. Was it Wolf Cop? No, wait, okay. it was something else. It, it was, was not Wolf Cop. Wolf it, Guy. Because there's another movie called Wolf Cop that, that, is, but that it, has a sequel out now. But this is in no way related. Again, again a, a Japanese film that comes out in the early 70s. 70s during this period when mangas are starting to become uh, more and more adapted to film. Oh, yeah. This is one of those films, as was the previous one we discussed, which was the uh, Wolf Cop, whatever it's called. Well, I, I, uh, it has more than one name, but it has no relationship to Doberman Cop, yeah. other than that they were both based on successful mangas and have next to no relationship to the original source And they material. both have Sonny Chiba. Anyway. And both Sonny Chiba. Playing two very different characters, and honestly... Wolf Guy. Wolf Guy, the the and then phone. Doberman Cop. But honestly, I, I rather... Apparently, Doberman Cop, uh, that manga has been adapted multiple times over the years. Uh, this is the first iteration of it, and again, it bears no real resemblance other than the title. Yeah. It has nothing in common with the original. And being a cop film. But, and being a cop film, but... I must say, I preferred this over Wolf Guy, which I, had these sort too. of strange, you know, Gonzo kind it's of supernatural like It didn't go far enough. I yeah. liked Wolf Guy, but it kept teasing you that it was going to go full-on Gonzo, yeah. and it always just kind of toyed with it. I see a wolf. I see a guy. Yeah. I never saw the Wolf Guy. This is not... Like terribly gonzo, mind you, but no. it does get kind of crazy too. Yeah, um, it's, he it's plays a, like a country cop. He's a it, bumpkin from Okinawa. Reminds where everybody me, thinks he is. Remember the old New York uh, like Western detective You're TV show, the Fritz Weaver show. What, what you know, what I'm talking about. Yes. Where was, he was a cowboy, but he decided to take a job yeah. in New York as uh, a cop. Uh, not McCallum, not McAllister. Yeah, something but it like was that. With Fritz Weaver, and I, that's exactly what I thought of. He Sonny Chiba shows up uh, into. 
Tokyo. Literally with like a straw hat. Straw hat <laughs> carrying a pig, which he's bringing from his village as a gift, you know, to whoever wants it. He's like, oh, they're delicious. Have one. Nobody wants this pig. And he ends up keeping the pig. It's odd that a movie called Doberman Cop never features any Dobermans. Yeah, I don't and know. And only has about. a pig. Uh, but the, uh, at some point, there's <laughs> something like, oh, pig. you're like a Doberman. You're like, you, you don't ever stop. Yeah. He has come to Tokyo to find a woman from his village who has gone missing for years. Uh, he's finds only to find out that she has been murdered and set ablaze because there is some serial killer who is killing prostitutes and setting them on fire. Sonny Chiba every, is treated like a bumpkin by everybody. Well, he is kind of a bumpkin. He is a bumpkin. <laughs> and he has like these sort of like, you know, folk, folksy, you know, superstitions. But he's also they, a great cop and a badass. <laughs> but he has great common sense and is often able to come up with leads that the local cops can't Well, part of it with. is that he's convinced that this woman, they found the body, despite some evidence that their, their, their uh, forensic department is saying is incontrovertible, that she's not the girl like, that, that he's looking for. She's not the girl they think she is. And he ends up getting involved with sort of like strippers and prostitutes and stuff yes. to try and find out what happened to her with singers. There's a lot of, just like with Wolf Guy, a lot of gratuitous nudity and sex in this thing with a lot of very beautiful Japanese women. Um, there's a lot of like, There's you know, Yakuza. There's a singing contest. A singing, there's, yeah, there's weird singing you know, contests. There's out of nowhere martial arts know, there's sequences. A, there's a kid from a motorcycle gang who's been framed for the murder. You know, it's a very convoluted plot, uh, but it's a lot of fun because it hangs together all really because of Sonny Chiba's charisma. He makes this cop a very likable, relatable guy. Uh, who seems and the to, pig. And, and he carries this, love, this cute love little pig. pig with him everywhere, which he offers to anybody who wants to eat, but nobody eats the pig. Nobody's so he ends up just pig. keeping the pig. It's just his pet uh, pig now. But, you know, by the end, it has a kind of oddly satisfying noir twist to the end of it that it I wasn't anticipating. I was like, oh, this is not the sort of moral balance of the universe being restored by <laughs> the end of the film. No. But, you know, it is definitely worth watching if you are kind of a Sonny Chiba completist, if you're enjoying these uh, Arrow features that came out previously. It, this One of the special features on here is... Uh, Sonny Chiba, Life in Action Part 2. Yeah, which Part is 1 part was, one, on, Wolf which was on Wolf Guy. So, so there, apparently this, this is a series. Yeah, this is definitely a great like double feature, these two films, which like I, said, I, I feel like have more in common tonally than you're, you're saying. I mean, they're definitely... They're, there's a certain amount of the same feel to them. There's a yeah. lot of similarities, but the characters themselves that Chiba playing are very, very different here, yeah. despite both being cops. Um, I would call these actually pretty decent little companion films, despite not yeah. specifically having anything to do with each other. And obviously... Arrow felt the same way, putting dividing the documentary about Sonny Chiba's career into two parts. And actually, it says at the end of the part two, if I recall correctly, that there's another one coming. Is there so another one coming? There's okay. probably a. You can look forward to another '70s Sonny Chiba obscure uh, film from this era. And there's an interview with the screenwriter on here. There's an interview uh, uh, with um, a biographer of the director here who talks about this movie and how initially it was considered a failure, but later was reconsidered as a better film. So, yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed this. I, I look forward to whatever they send us next from Sonny Chiba. Because yeah. I honestly, outside of the big ones, you know, Street Fighter series, sure. I've not watched a lot of Sonny Chiba movies. So, 
really looking forward to seeing more. It's going to drive me crazy until I remember the name of that Fritz Weaver series that I grew up watching. <laughs> uh, next up is a documentary. And this is off the beaten path of the sort of thing we, we cover. But uh, full disclosure, I was really into psychedelic drugs when I was like in my 20s. Like <laughs> liked them a lot and was really into Timothy Leary. Almost met him. Missed Timothy Leary by 10 minutes when he came into Lovejoy's downtown yeah. one day. And they're like, man, you just missed Al Jurgensen and Timothy Leary. They were just here. I was like, fuck. But one of those guys, I read a lot of his books and followed him because he was kind of the, the, you know, the guru of like psychedelic drugs and later became sort of the guru of virtual reality well before there was, even was such a thing. Yeah. About the, the, the profit. I mean, in the 90s, the, he ended up being getting sort of, you know, I think these, the cyberpunk uh, yeah. guys kind of, you know, adopted him, even though he was from a different era. He wrote a couple books about cyberpunk. And, and he, and, and likewise, and, he embraced and it too. And futurism, which he got really into. I mean, and it's interesting that he was sort of lifelong frenemies with Ram, Ram Das, who yeah. himself is a really fascinating guy. Um, Ram Das, he started kind of the same way. They both as started like, at Harvard as, as Harvard professors, and they both kind of got into psychedelic drugs and got into the spirit of the times, right. and they went very different ways. Whereas Ram Das discovered spiritualism and became a, a a guru in India, and a very much sort of like a life mentor to lots of people. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Leary, on the other hand, lifelong atheist, believed in the power of the the infinite power of the brain, and really got into the science of the whole right. thing and the art and beauty. And inherent in just yeah. what we are on earth and this is a documentary i'm sorry i haven't said the name dying to know ram das and timothy leary that follows them towards the end of timothy leary's life he's literally already knows he's dying of cancer at this point and a final interview they did with the two of them getting back together and talking about old times now it's not just a filmed interview no. it is a documentary that traces both their histories yeah. and their biographies especially how they where they intersected and intercutting it with this interview between the two of them, which is charming. These two, yeah. obviously like they're old men and there's obviously been points that they were quite antagonistic yeah. towards each other in their life, but now they both sort of made their peace. There's a lot of fact, history. They're after the same guys. thing. Yeah. They're just going I mean, about the, it. The big difference was, yes, I think that's the what And Ram Dass at some point even says Timothy wanted to sort of achieve this kind of enlightenment through chemical means. And I wanted to find something more natural, more sustainable. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, I have plenty of friends who are into kind of new age stuff, spiritualism, mm -hmm. uh, religion, and so forth. And I have friends who are kind of fascinated by the possibilities of chemical uh, experimentation. Uh, and usually at some point in any conversation, I just get bored with this Of shit. course. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. I don't yeah. care about any of this. Like so I said, this, this, this was me in my 20s who cared about yeah. this stuff so intensely. When I saw this disc, I kind of inwardly groaned because I thought this could be like this sort of perfect Luxury. Reese's peanut butter cup of things I don't like combined. It's like, hey, your new age spiritualism is, you know, in my... Uh, in my sort of pharmaceutical shamanism, two horrible tastes that I can't stand. <laughs> so it is a testament to how well made this documentary is that I actually, you know, said, you know what, I'm going to put aside my preconceived notions. I'm going to open myself to this. And what I get out of this is not so much an interest in spirituality or mortality or what lies beyond death. But this interesting story of these two men who had had a very long history, a very long friendship with all the ups and downs that come with that, and who at this point in their lives are old, are broken, are fallen apart, 
but still searching for something bigger beyond themselves. And the film is more about that search than it is for the answers they say that they have, which is the thing I was worried about would be, I was worried this would just be a look, let's talk deeply about what these guys have decided they believe. And it's not. I didn't want to be, I didn't want this to be one of those annoying lecture videos that show up at two in the morning. And I'm like, how the hell did this show up in my YouTube feed? uh, And and just an excuse for both of the, for a believer in both these guys' philosophies to you know, to say like, aren't these philosophies great? That's like, and here's a lot about them. That's not really what this is going on about. It's about two really interesting, very different people that at their core were almost the same. And the differences, like how through life they went these different paths and and intersected in and out. And then towards the end of their life, when you're viewing the end of your life, how these philosophies are helping them find peace with that. And as well, Ram Dass is like, he's still alive, but he's all but paralyzed yes. by the by the time they filmed this. This film documentary is several years old, but mm-hmm. but uh, he's still in the same condition, essentially dying himself. And it really is interesting. Yeah, you 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 feel good and bad for these guys all the way through. You know, it's kind of charming. They're likable like personalities, yeah. but I would not want to sit and listen to either one of them lecture for an hour these days. Right. And, and the thing is, was Leary is, I think it's also to be said that, you know, they don't let Leary off the hook. I think Rob no. Doss comes off pretty well, but he also talks about, you know, growing up, you know, all of the various neuroses and issues yeah. he had as a sort of wealthy uh, Jewish uh, Harvard student who was deeply closeted. And, you know, meanwhile, he has his buddy Leary, who is actually a hellraiser, a hard drinker, the kind of guy who gets kicked out of military school <laughs> yeah. because he's selling beer to people. You know, th- these Ooh. two guys are very sort of opposites attract. And yet they found this parallel course in their research that was actually legitimate research. And, and even Leary, during some of these uh, archival uh, like Senate testimony uh, footage says, you know, I never wanted people to go out and just like do drugs and do crazy yeah. shit. This was, you know, this should be administered by doctors, by healthcare professionals. You know, it's a way to improve the brain. It's a way to, you know, help people. Yeah, it's both, not something that you should just be doing lightly. And, and yet both of their, you know, the, the intricacies of their belief systems is a, a brief sketch in this film. There's yeah. the film. This is not about what they believed. This is about watching them believe yeah. it. And you get a little <laughs> small history of, you know, this program, this, the development of LSD, their yeah. studies with mescaline, their run-ins with the police. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a picture of the time and what was going on with that. I mean, the, yeah. the history of, of LSD and mushrooms in, in yeah. public use is a fascinating one. In fact, you could make a whole documentary that's not Watching just Timothy about Timothy Leary, Leary describe a trip. Yeah. If before a Senate committee awesome. and Teddy Kennedy, and he's like, so yeah, then I became like this snake and then the snake ate me and everybody there Dude, is when they, like, when they, what sh- the hell is he talking when about? they show Kennedy's face, he's yeah. just like, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> Who is this lunatic? <laughs> Who's probably actually done acid by this point. By that point, probably. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I actually recommend yeah. this. I think this and is And narrated by good. Robert Redford. Yeah, narrated by Robert Redford. If you do want more in-depth stuff, there's additional interviews that are kind of long yeah. with Andrew Weil, uh, who I think is kind of charlton but whatever yeah um, uh, joanna harcourt smith uh lama lama soltrim alione ramdas roshi joan halifax and zach leary who is timothy leary's very cool son yeah yeah 
All right. Well, let's move on to, well, okay. I'm, full disclosure, we're not going to spend long on this movie because no. we did a fully, highly suspect review with me and Marco and I forget who else. With Frank. With Frank of this movie, Norman. I just pulled up the wrong page. That's, no, that's okay. Right. Yeah, Norman, the uh, moderate rise and tragic fall of a New York fixer um, starring Richard Gere. Yeah, and this was a movie that we didn't know what to expect and we all end up really enjoying quite a bit. And now it is out on DVD. And highly recommend it. Just go ahead and give a brief rundown of the plot here. You Very know. brief rundown is the story about Norman, played by Richard Gere. He's a man of a certain age who has some kind of uh, political background. We don't really know what he does for a living, but he's that sort of guy who just wants to be a mensch to everybody. He wants to make connections. He wants to hook people up together so that they can make deals. You know, And one day, he takes a gamble by doing a very nice favor uh, for a young political operative from Israel who at the time, Norman doesn't realize this, this guy is going to end up becoming the prime minister of Israel. And then eventually, as because Norman is kind of the sort of guy who likes to name drop, he starts trying to get a lot of deals going based around his supposed familiarity with this powerful figure and how it all kind of implicates everybody he knows and brings down a lot, potentially brings down a lot of people. Ultimately, this is a movie about the small people in the world who don't get recognized yet have huge impacts on world events that no one ever gets to know about. I think it's one of the career best performances from gear. Yeah. And I think it's actually for what could be just a very talky sort of, you know, adult, uh, you know, uh, uh, drama. It actually has some very funny moments and has some very sharp visuals uh, that are used to depict the interior headspace of this character mm. in a way that I frankly haven't seen. Nice before. performances from Michael Sheen, from oh, yeah, Steve Buscemi, Josh Charles, Charlotte Gainsborough, uh, Dan Stevens, Hank Azaria. And I mean, once again, this is a grown up movie, folks, so it's watch very out. Grown up. Um, and it's, I, I described it to, I think my wife has said, it's the film about the menschiest schmuck who ever lived. That's <laughs> And, you know, it's still, I mean, it's still early yet. I mean, this is, we're only barely halfway through the year, but this is so far in my top 10, top 15 wow. favorite films of the year. It's, I don't see as much stuff as you do. It's really smart. But I and liked it. I recommend it. I think it takes a little while to get into it. So you have to give it about 30 minutes before you start to see where it's going. You're yes. like, where is this movie going? But once it grabs you, you're like, oh, yeah. It's a character piece all about Norman. And, and very it's tightly very, constructed. Yeah. It almost becomes a, a thriller in the last act. It does. And and definitely has that thing that always gets me about like unexpected human nobility, which gets me yeah. every in the craw every single time. All right. So that brings us to our final movie this week, Their Finest. I don't mean that's our finest movie we're reviewing. It may be the I mean, finest called, they have to offer. Yeah. Um, and this is a relatively solid little uh, 2016 yeah. British war comedy drama. Let me mix that many things together. You're like, <laughs> what is it? Uh, based on the 2009 novel by Lissa Evans called Their Finest Hour and a Half, which baffles me why they didn't just stick with that name because that's an amazing name. That's a damn good name. Because <laughs> right? that is approximately the runtime of a film. They're, they're, well, that's the point exactly. Yeah. It's the idea being is that it's 1940. It's in London. Gemma Arterton, who I will watch do anything. Oh yeah, she's uh, wonderful. She gets summoned in to interview with the Ministry of Information, and this is mind you, right in the middle of World War II. She's taken on to help write scripts for short informational films that play yeah. before features. And uh, meanwhile, her husband, played by Jack Houston, he's a war artist, but he's having a very hard time, like uh, finding his masculinity. I suppose to it's some degree. It's one of those cases where suddenly, because of the war, many of the uh, qualified men are off serving. Yeah. Uh, he is not able to because of a previous uh, injury. Uh, suddenly his wife uh, is the principal breadwinner 
A lot of men get, uh, you know, threatened by that. And it's at a time when women get some opportunities because so many of the men yeah. from the industry are off fighting. She's brought in as a script doctor to work on punching up female dialogue. Yeah, and but, and that expands rather quickly when people go, wow, she's really good at this. And, and yes. to be fair, we don't have a lot of choices for people. So she starts slowly getting more and more and more brought into this production, even eventually charming Bill Nighy, who plays the, the older actor a classic actor now in his decline who ends up this vain actor who doesn't realize who won't accept that he's old and is no longer the leading man who ends up being uh, brought in by her charms as well and she is absolutely charming she is no question the center of this movie you root for her all the way through this the whole thing with her husband is is a subplot you literally could have deleted from this film almost i think so almost it's just there to create some tension between her and the uh the other screenwriter played by uh Jack Cardiff? I can't remember. No, I can't I remember his name. Either way, yeah. this is a very fun movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's slight. It's not terribly substantial, but it's an interesting look at a period in British filmmaking history when the Ministry of Information was, and quite frankly, they were not, you know, they weren't shy about using the word. They were making propaganda films. Oh, yeah. These were films designed not only to entertain, but to uplift people and to move the war effort. When I saw what this movie was about, I half was hoping that we would get some mention of Powell and Pressburger, yeah. who were some of the best at doing this particular kind of film. Instead, we get a producer who is a, a Hungarian producer who's kind of a vague combination. Yeah. It's of a fictional Alexander Korda and Emmerich Pressburger. This is not based on real people. It's no, just based it's based on a real time and things that were really happening. But things were just happening. With imaginary people. And like the 39th parallel, they're tasked with making a film. That's like, we have to get the Americans on board. There's a lot of comedy that comes from the sort of kind of producers meddling going, well, you know, we need this American guy, but he's a terrible actor. And we need a a dog in here. And, you know, can't we give these women something less to do? Give, Give it to one of the guys. And she, of course, is fighting to make stronger female characters. This is slight. Uh, it is charming. It's a lot of fun. After watching Straw Dogs and Don't You Recognize Me Back to Back, this was the palate cleanser I needed to make me love the world again. I mean, yet yeah, once again, though, too long. This is almost two, two uh, full hours. It, and it, it feels like it could have been a two-part mid- BBC miniseries. It does. And the thing is, it really is, I mean, like... It's so much of this is is fluff, lovable, very likable fluff. Inter, with a bit intersected of a with turn bits of mod. Well, there's a couple different maudlin moments as yeah. major characters, and it suddenly die because it is, it is in the middle of the Blitz and yeah. World War Two. People die. People die all the time. Uh, and there's a lot of nice uh, actors in this that, that have small roles, like Eddie Marsan and Richard E. Grant and Jeremy Irons that appear in this thing. But like I said, this is Arterton's show. She once again proves she's one of the, she has some of the most charisma of any actress working today. We just uh, rewatched for Deliberations of Doom, her film uh, with Neil Marshall, Byzantium, which I adore. And you're just like, wow, the range of types of characters she can play. I think is incredible. She's a star in the making if she isn't already. I mean, you know, she hasn't, I think, made like a big Hollywood film. Sure she has. She was in one of the Bond ones. I forget which one, but she was one of the modern Bonds. Yeah. I don't really count the mod- the female Bond lead because what do they? What do the the Bond women ever do after a Bond film? Well, Gemma Arden. She's one of the few. I'm like, oh, she's actually a good actress. Yeah, who actually went on to like, yeah, I'm a really good actress. Famke Janssen did okay. Famke Janssen, all right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, I I did enjoy this. I I, it's. It's odd that it gets so fucking cute 
and then so like 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 some of the total shit are a little weird. It's a little and it, like I said, the, I really feel like it's so obvious that the thing with her ex husband is only there. So, for the purpose of construction of the script, so she doesn't immediately hook up with this other writer who right. she's having Who's a, a much better fit for her. Yeah, exactly. And it's just frustrating every time They're, the camera, the the film goes back to what's going on with her husband because you're like, I don't care about this guy. Yeah. There, there's a really nice uh, visual touch that they do as they are developing this script, which is loosely based on something that happened, and then they keep inventing it and they keep changing it. And as the writers are talking about it, we see this film being shot uh, and we cut back and forth between the reality of the real world and this studio backlot type set, mm-hmm. which it gives a really nice uh, sort of technicolor feel uh, to the movie. And there is a beautiful shot. Uh, one of my favorite shots in this movie is, is a old style matte painting. And it's the kind of matte painting that is done in camera on set that you don't see anymore today and they make a great visual gag off of that so I was kind of thinking well it feels like a TV movie but this actually has some nice visuals to go along with a great cast and a very fun uh, airy type of plot it's worth checking out if you just want to pick me up wow so there was literally nothing on our cast today that we both hated no no I mean the closest closest thing don't you recognize me which we said had promised but didn't live up to it everything else we're like yeah I really like that I'd recommend it Yeah, that's an odd week for sure it's like, I promise, you know, we'll be back hating stuff next time. Yeah, you know, you we're, love We're just going to have to hate stuff. You love the schadenfreude you get from us like, being in pain. Let's just agree before we record. Is, is this the one we're going to hate? Yeah, let's just hate that one. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Once again, thank you to you, Marco, thank for you, joining me. Uh, he's going to go enjoy a nice vacation weekend. I will be here working, so fuck you. Vacation? You're going to the beach. I call that a vacation. I'm not going to the beach. Well, you're going near the beach. I went near the beach. It's family. What you, you okay, you're right. I, I would not it's trade family. that. I would not trade that. Uh, also, once again, please become a subscriber. Can't tell you how much that helps. Really, we're depending on you guys to keep us alive. Even if you're just able to afford $2 a month, that's nothing, man. Sign up for $2 a month and you know you're doing your part to help keep oneofus.net alive. But uh, until next time, something, something, tagline. <laughs> Have a great weekend. Catchphrase. I hope you had a great weekend because you're listening to this on Monday. Goodbye, everybody. Oneofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel.